You're listening to the 2008 Jack Straw Writers' Program. On this edition of the podcast, you'll hear program curator Judith Roche interview writer Gita Sino. I love irony. I love wit. And that's what I read mostly. And I think subconsciously that's what I absorb. But also the subject matter that I'm dealing with is very serious. And I think at some point it becomes some kind of defense mechanism, you know, um, for me, and sort of protecting the reader, too. It's like, okay, if I can make it prettier or funnier for you to, to read this, then I will. <laughs> and then maybe you'll read it. Maybe you'll read it. Maybe you'll finish <laughs> it till the end. Gita, would you talk about your project for the Jack Straw Writers Program? I'm writing a collection of short stories uh, thematically linked by uh, 9-11. Um, it's funny because I have a tendency to say 911 instead of 911, and people w- think I'm writing about the our uh, emergency system, oh. <laughs> and it's not. It's 911, um, and uh, it's it's a collection of stories um, uh, from uh, you know from an Arab. Uh, not all of them are from an Arab standpoint, uh, but I thought it would be interesting for people to hear about, for instance, or read about uh, a family that is dealing with the situation maybe half an hour after it happened. Um, you know, what went through um, Arab people's minds when the planes hit the towers. And I think it's, you know, in the way that literature can help us understand and go deeply into a culture, um, I thought that that would be interesting for people to, to read. Um, but the stories, uh, you know, take place uh, half an hour after 911. A year after 911, two years after 911, and they're from different people's perspectives. Um, and you know, the the deeper I got into it, the the more I realized how interesting it is in terms of, you know, the impact that it had not only on Arab Americans but Americans and how they dealt with the situation and didn't deal with the situation. And so there's a lot there's a lot to say there. Mm-hmm. Now you'll hear Gita reading her work at a live performance at Jack Straw Productions. The story is called A Patriot Acts, and it's a story about, about a woman who's making her first late-night show appearance. Soon it will be her turn to walk on stage, to stop halfway across and wave to deflect attention from her below national height, and then head to where the couch is. The comedian, the show's second guest, will stand up, give her a peck on the cheek, and offer her the hot seat. She will kiss him back, sit, and immediately, immediately cross her legs and brush her hair back so as to lift the audience's gaze off her padded thighs, which are, alas, not once befitting a primetime appearance, and focus it on her blue eyes, black hair combo. She will then take in the host's welcoming comments, flirt a little, giggle, and stifle the giggling with a sip of water from her mug, which she will then place back on the table and wait for her cue to launch into the personal anecdote she, the producer, and the publicist had agreed on, something about her silly habit of not changing her light bulbs until they all go out, and she really can't see anymore, not even herself in the mirror. She will then cover her face with her hands while the audience laughs, brush her hair back with her fingers, and turn to the host and flirt some more until he asks her the one question everyone loves to ask, which is how many television sets she ended up with after her ordeal, which serves as the cue for her to draw the audience in by asking them to guess. 
She will then reveal the number and the audience will gasp. While the audience is exhaling, the host will grab a copy of her book and place it on the desk for the camera to close in on. Then flipping through its pages like it's something that ought to be recycled, he will offer that she was too young to write her memoirs and too young to be a doctorate. He will say something to the effect of, yikes, I think I've read only one book since college, and that's my autobiography. And as she is dispensing her reply, he will abruptly extend something that resembles a shark's tail, but which is really his right hand, thank her for coming, thank the comedian for coming, and the audience for tuning in. For now, she sits in the green room in a moiré evening dress and stilettos, occasionally looking up at the muted television screen where the comedian who had been keeping her company seconds ago is now simultaneously on stage and inside the television. Upright and confident, with his glistening bald head and inverted triangle physique, he is a veritable joke to Spencer to a friendly and well-trained studio audience. She ponders unmuting the television, but something stops her, and she continues staring with delight and despair as if at an aquarium. It's good enough for now that he appears poised and relaxed, almost sedated, considering the terror attack she'd just nursed him through. Stand-up comedy, she concludes, is the only profession, if one can call it that, where one's physical awkwardness and distinctive mannerisms are an asset if played right. There's honesty in it, and maybe that's where the difficulty lies, in the nudity, a nudity even television and its editing machines have to abide by. You can't mess with somebody's monologue once they manage to make it onto the stage, that is, and he almost didn't. Are you okay, she'd asked him as he bent to the floor and dry heaved, his freshly yanked off tie resting beside him like a circus instrument? Not a good time to talk, he said, grabbing a bottle of mineral water from the tray in front of him. I understand, she said, scanning the room for a potential vomit receptacle until her eyes settled on a small waste basket in the corner. She stood up, walked over to it, picked it up, and placed it closer to where she was sitting. This made her feel prepared. The comedian was now cradling his face in his arms as if in delayed response to one of the year's many tragedies. She had no idea who he was, but then again, stand-up comedy was not her thing. For lack of anything else to do, she grabbed the remote and raised the volume of the flat screen. The host, who had a habit of filling with a basketball while on stage and then shooting it when a joke bombed, was running through his monologue. Well, it looks like the president isn't doing so well. His ratings are down, the war in Iraq is a mess, and members of his cabinet are under investigation. It's getting so bad that White House staffers became very worried when he ordered a bowl of pretzels to be delivered to his study. Laughter spilled from the audience, sanctifying a twirling of the ball on the host's fingers. She too laughed, despite herself, as if fighting a hiccup. Four years and two wars later, the president's blunders and lies are once again the stuff of jokes. The nation's anxiety having been successfully expulsed onto other nations, like kicking out of bed someone who had been keeping you up and then going back to sleep. Turn it off, please, yelled the comedian, standing up abruptly. I can't listen to anyone else's monologue right now, please. He was tall, bulky, and not much older than her. Startled, she picked up the remote and muted the TV, regaining composure rather swiftly, for the gesture of lifting the remote and manipulating the small screen tickled her to no end. It had become, she decided, her life's objective correlative. 
When the screen went black, the comedian instantly dropped to his knees as if in response to a gunshot and began tying his fashionably dilapidated tennis shoes. Sorry, he said, looking up. I could go back to my dressing room, but I was feeling a little claustrophobic in there. She nodded. If I leave, he continued, all of his features shifting sideways at once as if someone had italicized his face, I might not be able to find my way back. Too many hallways. That's totally fine, she said, standing up and extending her head. I take it you're Mike Peck. I am. Oh, I know who you are, he said, immediately moving toward her still on his knees. This always made her fear slightly unreal, as if she was in the witness protection program, and one after the other, her fellow Americans were uncovering her identity. She smiled. I'm a huge fan, by the way, he said, grabbing her hands. Thank you. What you did was fucking kick ass. I didn't do anything, she said, goosing her neck an inch, repeating the phrase she'd used ad nauseum, noting that her choice of emphasis has been progressing like the movement of a symphony from didn't to do to anything and feeling panicked as if she was nearing some kind of end. Yours, one, yours was one of the boldest moments on television, if you ask me, he insisted, grabbing her hands and rubbing her knuckles vigorously. That's a very generous way of putting it, she responded, pulling her hands back, thinking that this man has suffered in his life, from his excess mass, from not being able to gauge in advance the limited space his body required him to seize from others, and from not knowing what to do with this space once he's in it. Is this false or real modesty, he asked. It's not modesty at all. How about that? Good one, good one, he said rather loudly. Is this why you're here with the civilians and not in your dressing room? Actually, she said, looking around her, it didn't occur to me to stay in my dressing room, but I can go back if you need some space. Not at all. I've been looking forward to meeting you. I'm told the football player will ramp up the ratings for us. He's not staying for the whole show, which is good, because I have no idea who he is. I don't know who he is either, she said, sitting back. She doesn't know who anyone around here is because she doesn't watch television, which is irony of all ironies, how she got here. You'll have to forgive me. I'm very nervous, he said. I've waited all my life for this moment, and now it's happening, and all I want to do is smash each and every bottle on this table into that red circle on the wall. It's an ugly mural for sure, she said, and I can certainly understand your being nervous. She really didn't, not personally, not viscerally, not anymore. Nor could she really relate to the potential cardiac arrest, her own unsolicited breakthrough having caught her off guard during an interview on a much more serious national news show after which her meretricious fame had raged like a bull with her on its back for the next four years. Now, after having pushed so many buttons, she's on promotion autopilot, as they say, to the point where she has started understanding the idea that being on stage is very predictable, whereas real life is not. She watched, case in point, as the comedian unbuttoned his shirt very quickly, as if the monologue inside him had caught on fire. I need to do this, he explained, lunging to the floor for what looked like push-ups, or else I'll explode. Feel free, she said, factoring in the secret behind his disproportionately bigger upper body. You know, he said, bobbing up and down, for a while there, you couldn't joke about anything anymore. And now that thousands and thousands more have died, it's quite safe to laugh. Someone please let the comedians out of their cages. It's all so funny now. It didn't stop you people from joking about me, she thought to herself. I want you to know that I never once made a joke about you. I never once made a joke about you, he repeated. For one, I was out of the country. I left in a hurry. 
and two, I wouldn't have because that's not my shtick. His uncanny sense of timing prevented her from saying or thinking anything further. You never really know, he continued, in this country what will work and what won't. It's really part of the thrill of living here, of being an American. Things seem to slip from big to small and small to big without any criteria or any explanation. Take the Y2K scare, for instance. Big to small. Anthrax scare, big to small. The bride who ran away, small to big. <laughs> and on and on and on. She nodded, observing his hands prematurely wrinkled from the weight they were being made to bear. My theory is that it has to do with the Constitution and the law of unintended consequences. I used to joke about the Constitution all the time, way back when, when you could still joke about the Constitution, before it became a religious document. <laughs> Let's see. The right to free speech and the right to bear arms. Watch out, everybody, said the mailman. I have a gun. <laughs> she chuckles despite herself. You like that one, huh, he said, twisting his neck to look at her. These days, though, the humor pales in comparison to the incongruity. I mean, 9-11, even. You look at where we are now, and you're like, what, what happened? How did we get here? You're asking me, she said indignantly. You're in the first category, by the way, he said consolingly, from small to big. You can say that again, she whispered, reclining back and closing her eyes. Small to big, yes. And the little that is left of her smallness continues to recede, licked by time and circumstance. To think that someday, a day will come when she will no longer recall the mis that misery of an afternoon when much younger in age and wisdom and unable to eat or sleep, she drafted a short essay about the World Trade Center attacks almost a week after it vanished, in which she expounded on her refusal to watch the footage of the attack on television and called on th all three major networks to cease the senseless, endless repetition. In the essay, she wrote, the tragedy, shocking though it was, didn't surprise me, as I am aware of the planet's geopolitical urgencies and America's lopsided foreign policy, especially as it pertains to the Arab world. When my neighbor rescued me from the storage room and told me what had happened, I felt immediate emotional fatigue, the grief and the sadness of destruction, and the sorrow of personal failure. As it turned out, she was looking for her photo album of pictures from her last trip to New York. We both sat down and looked at the photos, hoping to stay in the basement for as long as we possibly could. To her shock and awe, the piece was accepted for publication in a national weekly, and then from there flew like a small insect of her own creation from one computer to the next in the inexplicable phenomenon otherwise known as the World Wide Web. And if that wasn't enough, several weeks later, on Halloween to be precise, a television producer called her up and invited her to discuss her ideas on the You Said It segment of his news magazine. He said the essay had obviously struck a chord and that it is imperative that the media offer a variety of perspectives and that hers was one such powerful perspective. My audience, he said, will love you. Standing in her living room in her crafty pencil sharpener costume, she was stunned at the quickness, seeming sincerity, and politeness of television, a medium she dismissed since her adolescence as a waste of time and minds. This stable sentiment she would go on to highlight in her book, despite her editor's opposing of the idea. Let me first say, she wrote in her introduction, I'm one of those irritating individuals whose 
individuals whose genuine dislike of television is always interpreted as intellectual self-importance. Pop culture references elicit no reaction or any excitement for me, like taking a vision test and not recognizing any of the letters. At the mention of one, even during serious conversation, I'm forced to shake my head like an imbecile. The truth of the matter is, I am a very outdoorsy and studious person, two traits that seem to exclude sitting on a couch and staring numbingly at something trying so hard to grab your attention. My suspicions were conferred when later on in life, I read the origins of this species and discovered to my great relief that there was nothing in it to suggest that we were destined for three hours of television viewing every day. <laughs> She has come to know that paragraph by heart because she has chosen to read it at all the bookstores on her book tour. And at each talk, she had to stop and think as if in a moment of prayer of that one sentence that her editor had forced her to drop two days before her publication date. This was the burgeoning of my political consciousness of becoming aware that television was a choice that human beings have made, that in their rapacious desire for narrative, instead of listening and telling their own stories, they chose a third party to do the telling, and by third party I mean a complex capitalist web of competing desires and interests which has served to undermine the small tube's original premise, if there ever was one. It was too much, the editor had said of the sentence which now lay dormant in her computer, quietly consuming its memory in one of the many versions of the manuscript. We don't want to punish our readers for clicking on their televisions once in a while. Still thinking of the sentence, she lifts one foot and places it on top of the other, catching sight of her pedicured toenails, squared to perfection and made three-dimensional by several layers of nail polish, and which now looked like little television sets. <laughs> If she had to pinpoint a beginning, it had to have been that fucking cloudburst that had appeared and exploded over her on her way to the Halloween party, a phenomenon so rare in Los Angeles for that time of year that it could have only meant the end of one world and the beginning of another. A rain so pointed, its wetness so disturbing, it only served to highlight the newness of her surroundings, a city full of flags like they were on sale and faces full of fear like it was a new tax law. It forced her to find an unsolicited refuge in the serene phone call she'd received. The producer's invitation, she had to concede, had been some kind of index that the United States of America wasn't going to close in on itself any more than it had already dared to. That if television was willing to think and entertain, then the nation would certainly at least think about thinking while being entertained. Sure, she told him the next morning, hungover and no longer a pencil sharpener, she would be happy to share her insights and that she saw this as her obligation really to her country in the non-military sense of the word, of course, since that same country was now seeing it as its duty to reconfigure the map, starting with where the poor people of Afghanistan now live. Thank you. This podcast was produced by Jack Straw Productions as part of the Jack Straw Writers Program. The 2008 curator of this program is Judith Roche. Music performed by the Ocherook Sextet in the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. Producer is Jenny Cecil Moore. Recording engineers are Mo Preventure and Tom Stiles. Narrator is Amy Brumhall. And executive director of Jack Straw Productions is Joan Rabinowitz. 
The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation, Arts Fund, Poncho, the Mayor's Office of Arts and Cultural Affairs, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.